Will they come back? Midtown Manhattan, the center of business in New York City, is still looking pretty empty these days. Office workers have yet to come back in large numbers. So is the shift to working from home becoming permanent? And what will this mean to corporate efforts to diversify the workplace? For years, there's been talk that automation and digital technology would have a tremendous impact on our nation's workforce, not only eliminating jobs, but also fundamentally changing how and where work is done. COVID-19 has accelerated these trends. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. With me today is Dr. Arthur Langer. He's chairman and founder of a nonprofit organization called Workforce Opportunity Services, WOS. Workforce Opportunity Services has helped hundreds of young people from underserved and underrepresented communities, as well as post-9-11 veterans, get good jobs at companies like Prudential, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and others throughout the nation. Dr. Langer is also a professor at Columbia University. His research focuses in part on reinventing education and the U.S. workforce. The WOS model that Dr. Langer developed focuses on offering support for underserved communities from the beginning of their training all the way through employment. This model is being integrated into the curriculum of a new one-year part-time Workforce Education and Development Advanced Certificate being offered by Columbia's Center for Technology Management in collaboration with Columbia's Teachers College and Workforce Opportunity Services. Dr. Langer, thank you so much for taking the time. Great to be here. So the coronavirus pandemic has led to a large-scale move to remote work and skyrocketing unemployment. What has the pandemic uncovered when it comes to this nation's outsourcing of employment, do you think? Well, I think that um, obviously having no single point of failure, being able to flip over to alternative ways of doing something, it's it's very it's very similar, but on a much larger basis to what happened in 9-11, when all of a sudden um, a company like Lehman Brothers that got hit very hard, they were across the street, the people couldn't get into their computers. And that and that came, what what occurred from that was now everybody has virtual access to their desktops. And I think you're seeing a similar thing happen here. Uh, many of the digital born companies, if you will, it was it was easy. All right. They, they had been doing it. But many other companies had not really invested in technology in which they could cut off on a minute's notice for people to work from home. And uh, this has been an amazing learning experience because all of a sudden, although many people had connectivity, they've also discovered that there were many things they didn't have access to. And that has created some supply chain problems. The second thing that I think is extremely important is this notion of no single point of failure. And so for example, outsourcing in India and dependencies there uh, here's a country that is going through a lot of challenges. More importantly, if it, they are government issues and how much control do you really have when something is going on inside of a government, which may or may not be honest with you. And nobody wants to be in that kind of a of, of set of circumstances. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, to have all of these choice capabilities, it costs money. Mm -hmm. And I think that another piece of this is shame, shame, shame on so many of these companies that have never really invested enough of infrastructure or technologies. And that's what we're really discovering in our government and our hospitals and, and many of these companies where you didn't really have that in some of the more technology NASDAQ companies. And that's why they're doing so much better. 
Yeah, so how much catch-up will a lot of these companies still have to do post-COVID? Um, I think it's much more complicated than that. It's not just about catch-up. So let me explain this from a technical point of view, being the you know director of our Center of Technology Management. While all this is occurring, as we come out of it, all right, there's still going to be a skill shortage, all right? <laughs> but there's a, a much more important thing going on, and that is the, uh, the rollout of 5G the massive amounts of internet of things. We are going to, uh, uh, the new Apple phones that will be coming out. And what's happening is companies will be collecting massive amounts of data. We will become a data centric world. And what's happening is if you're already behind, now you're really behind. <laughs> all right, because all, the amount of data that's going to be captured around the world which will be used, you know, obviously the Facebooks and others have proven how important data is and predictive analytics. Well, you're going to be, it, it, there's an explosion of this coming. Remember that 5G is 100 times faster than 4G. So you can imagine if you're on 3G. Now, it's not quite here yet. We'll see it in stadiums and universities and other places, but it's coming. So it's not just a question of catch up. It's also amount of really reevaluating. The, the cost of competing. And what I'm foreseeing, uh, which we've even learned from GE and other companies, that they may not have the money to do this. So they're going to have to have partners, right? So we see an explosion of private equity investment. And I can guarantee you, you're going to have a lot of activity in M&A, mergers and acquisitions. Because simply put, not all the players are going to be able to invest the kinds of money that is necessary to now catch up. They've missed, they've missed it. And as you see, many companies, what they're doing, uh, which is a hard, you know, it's, it, it, it's a classic, you know, kind of strategies, they're going bankrupt and they're coming back. So Toys R Us went bankrupt. They're going to re-release it. Uh, Brooks Brothers went bankrupt. All right. They're going to, they're going to come. They're not closing, but they're in bankruptcy. So they're getting rid of their debt. They're still selling and they're going to move forward. You know, the classic reboot. So you'll see some of those things going on as well. So what does all of this mean for the future of the American workforce, do you think? Well, I, I don't think we should panic. I, I, you know, one of the things historically that's really true, and I'm not the only person that has written about this, the industrial, the, the industrial revolution didn't eliminate jobs. It just transformed them. All right. And it was painful. <laughs> right? There were a lot of people who thought that the horse wasn't going away, but the horse kind of went away other than in racing and, and, and farms, right? Um, I, th I think the distinct difference in, in our revolution is that it's happening so much quicker because technology is an accelerator of change. So uh, I think what it really means is that, uh, you, you know, it's, you know, either you're going to be digital or you're going to be in serious trouble. But that doesn't mean, in my mind, that people are not going to uh, miss going to work. I think the answer is always yes. And, and, and as I've been telling lots of executives, you know, 25 years ago, I won't mention the bank, but I was called into a bank under non-disclosure in conversations about the elimination of branches, branch banks, right? I mean, they are, they are, they are, you know, a foresight here was that old people would die, passbook accounts would go away, uh, the younger generation would embrace uh, online banking. And I sat there and I'll admit to you, I, I bought off on it. So if your career choice at that time was to be a branch manager, it wasn't too good of a choice. 
and it made a, it made a lot of sense to get rid of those things. Well, I don't know if you've looked lately, but you'll now I've poisoned your mind, and you'll see this every day. But but everything that we saw happening with technology and banking happened, and they're opening more branches than ever before. And I think this is the key. It is not either or. The answer always is yes and and. All right. So what I think is you see a rebalancing. And we're in the era, uh, as Amazon has taught us, of choice, all right? And I think what you'll see is people will have choice that one day they may want to stay home and they'll have the complete abilities to have a work from home office. And, and, and other times they will need to go to the, to the office because I believe we're, I think we're social animals. I mean, I think young people, I mean, what are they going to do? I mean, people get married, they date. Uh, go to New York City on a Friday at six o'clock and you go into the bars and the restaurants, you're not going to see people like us. We're old, right? You're going to see young people uh, enjoying themselves and doing things. I don't think that's going to go away. So in your opinion, if we do a massive upskilling and retraining of workers who've been laid off due to the pandemic, there will be jobs for them to have going forward? Uh, well, look, it's the old story of can you, can you teach the old dog new tricks? That's always the challenge, all right? But one of the things that we're doing in workforce is what we're saying is, hey, we're seeing a, a now a reverse migration. The, the predictions by 2026 is that cities would become megacities and, 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 and that people in rural areas were disappearing. Uh, but COVID has come in and we see a reverse thing going on right now. But we don't see that happening with people in underserved areas. They don't have the money and the financial wherewithal to, 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 to do that. Uh, so one of the interesting things that we've been experiencing workforce is we were way ahead of the curve and work from home. And, but these people are also local, so they can commute a, a little bit easier. All right. And they're actual, a, a fairly dependable group of individuals. And I call this the hidden talent scenario. And what we're seeing today is we still have a skill shortage. And there are actually, if, if the, um, uh, you know, whether it's the, uh, the direction or the, or, the, uh, or the courage for companies to now start saying, if I invest in this, uh, not only will I have uh, someone who can easily work there, I may have to give them some money to upscale their places of where they live. But we've also found that these people do not turn over as quickly because they have more complex family structures. And this is important because what we're seeing in the technology world is the Amazons and others, they're scooping up a lot of people. Uh, and I see this at our graduates at Columbia University that the, you know, the leading companies, whether it's Microsoft or it's, or it's um, Apple or it's Google or it's Amazon or Salesforce, all of these companies are competing to find the very best people. But there's this hidden, talented, diverse group of individuals that actually can contribute. For ex another example is, you know, we were invested in, in military spouses five, six, seven years ago with Prudential. <laughs> and they are great working gig type of workers. So uh, I, don't, I don't buy off on there's a shortage of, uh, that there's gonna be not enough labor. There, there's not enough. Do you know that, that the last time I checked, there were 37,000 openings in, in Texas for construction workers? It's an, it's an amazing thing, all right? I think what we've realized is that the outsourcing abroad is the one that has to be really reconsidered. 
because like anything else, if you, if you, if you sell out to your talent outside your country, that's really going to be a problem. You'd be amazed how many brilliant kids in Harlem, in Detroit, in other poor areas, rural areas that unless they're discovered and, and put on a path, they won't get through that. They won't get discovered as I was. All right, because I'm a poor kid from the Bronx. I mean, the way I always say it is a bum like me makes it to Columbia University. Think about that. I mean, only in America. What has happened to us? All right. I'm telling you, there's tons and tons of these spectacular young people out there that are just waiting to be discovered. Yeah, I want to talk more about your story, but I was going to ask you the question. Talk to us more about the importance of tapping into that local talent pool. Well, I think that, number one, um, a porter from Harvard, our famous economist, once uh, is documented in saying that companies have to, it, wherever they are, they, they, they have to have a representation inside their companies from the communities that they're serving. All right. And one of the things uh, about digital born companies is, you know, the underserved uh, areas are still huge commerce areas. Um, and, and exploring that is good business. Let's forget about being nice for a minute, all right? Let's forget about D&I just for a minute. All those things are important and they're great, but you know and I know that being nice is not systemic. What's being nice is when I go to someone and said, I can get you 10 people for a really good price that will, can grow in and likely won't leave. We'll give you the DNI, but we'll be a great worker. It's sort of like what we went through with the veteran population as well. They're hungry. They have what I call the eye of the tiger, right? And um, uh, it, it, there are openings like this. And there are, let me put it to you this way. I don't know how many billions are outsourced a year, but it's a significant number, like $200 billion. And it's the old 80-20 rule. 20% of the things we outsource to other countries we're probably not very happy with. So you tell me, what's 20% of $200 billion? That's an amazing company. <laughs> I mean, so I think you're seeing that, right? We're beginning to see companies that traditionally would only hire college graduates, all right, are now beginning to, to consider coding academies and other ways of getting talent, not only because it's there, but because... Um, you know, the, these graduates are looking for bigger and better other kinds of things as, as they come out, which a lot of these companies cannot offer them. Since 2008, employers have increasingly disinvested in training and support for new employees with on-the-job training becoming more popular. How does this contribute to a lack of diversity in corporations, especially in tech companies? Well, I think it was a bad choice because what you have is an ever-ending cycle that someone who's underserved and doesn't have the support, you can't create a systemic shift without some type of artificial support because they just can't compete. All right. Um, I, I, and what I'm saying here is let's take the colleges and universities that are also being disrupted and are a big part of this problem. All right. So, you know, obviously, if you if you grow up in a family that has the means to to, to get you trained and educated, to pass your SAT exams and get good scores. And I'm not talking about the illegal things that have gone on and the favors uh, they get to the better schools, you get the better education, you get the better faculty. Um, and even though that many of us have gone need blind, like at Columbia and others, it's still hard to compete unless you have natural instinctive ability to make a real shift. And then there's the cultural concepts of it. You know, I'm a kid that came from the street. And, and you know, I'll admit to you that there may have been times that I lied because 
lying was a way of surviving. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a long-winded white lie. And, and corporations, take it from me and the research that we've done and, and what we've done with workforce, uh, corporations are not set up, number one, to even take those kinds of risks. They're risk averse. Corporations are not democratic institutions. They try to be. Public firms have all types of exposures and uh, they're lean and mean and they're choking the chicken for every single penny. And one of the things that we've discovered from COVID is it's no longer ch just in time. It should have been just in case. And if I was going to be critical on our hospitals, and I know to some this may sound unfair because it would have been overwhelmed anyway, but did they really have enough inventory? And the answer is no. And let's face it, so many of our, we see what's going on with hospital systems. They're buying each other. They're for-profit institutions. It's big business. And shame, shame that our government ran out of resources. Our government's computer systems are a disaster. Um, hospitals ran out of just in case. Uh, the only ones that didn't were the banks. And you know why? Because of 2008, right? So uh, we, we have to start moving from this short-sightedness. And Amazon has taught, it that, taught us that, right? What did Bezos say to the world? He said, hey, leave me alone with these profits. We're going to lose money for the next couple of years, but we're going to build one hell of a company. Do you think those are lessons learned or will we face the same challenges? Absolutely. I think, um, look, I know there's, there's wealth in the stock market, but there's also a crisis there. Uh, you know, anybody would tell you philosophically that the purpose of, of a company is to make a return to the long-term shareholders, not to the short-term shareholders. And you know, and I know there's a lot of short-termers in this thing. And what Amazon was doing, which has worked, and others, Salesforce and many others, was not being so much concerned about the P&L, but more about the market size. And what we're seeing now, I mean, who ever heard of a, a 3,200, I don't know what it is today, but a $3,000 per share stock, uh, all right? And, and, and it really has worked because the, the, the people have bought into it. And it's more about service and doing good service and people will stay with you. It's about rewarding evolution as opposed to stamping it out. All right. All the things that uh, many of my colleagues and myself in business schools and other places have written about for years. Um, and Amazon has made the employees feel like entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs. And, and that anybody knows that does that, that's not, you know, you don't turn that around each quarter. You know, the quarterly clause. And I think the other joke out there in Amazon and others is, you know, what business is Amazon in? And the answer is whatever they want. And they've crushed the notion of a vertical concept. When I was brought up, I was told, hey, Art, don't do too many things. Do a few things really well and that'll grow your business. Well, Amazon has shattered that, right? Because now it's about platforms and horizontal businesses, so, um, you know, beware of those, those crazy rules that people have come up with. And I, I'm still looking for who they were. I'm looking for the person in retail that said you should never spend more than 2% on technology. They were the lowest investors uh, of technology of any uh, industry. And who got rated the first? Retail. How has Workforce Opportunity Services adapted its services to the changing workspace, including the need for social distancing and the increasing tendency to work from home? Well, uh, first of all, we were way ahead of the curve um, because we understood it. 
We know we have people that know what it's like to live in the inner cities, in rural areas, um, to be coming out of a veteran. We we had experiment. We had been doing work from home for years with military spouses in other areas. It was seamless for us, as it has been for many of the digital uh, companies. But I think the most important thing is listen to the market. All right, take some risks. Have a failure rate. I always call it batting average. You know, the old story that a baseball player comes to the plate and gets a hit one out of every three times. He goes to the, he goes to the, he goes to the Hall of Fame. And I ask people all the time, you know, uh, what's your batting average? They look at me like I'm nuts, you know, and, and, or are you really trying to bat a thousand? Because that's what stimulates the lack of risk and investment in entrepreneurial spirit. So uh, just for example, we started out uh, predominantly as an IT outsource alternative as a supply chain. And, and the fact that we're doing uh, um, military uh, people was Prudential uh, asking us to get involved with it in 2010. And then all of a sudden, a company like United Rentals, one of the most successful companies out there, said, we want you to do this and, 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 and hire veterans for us who are going to be mechanics. So we went from a from a very high class upward mobility to blue collar with mobility. And now we're doing all kinds of, I mean, I mean at one point before COVID, we were doing almost a hundred mechanics a year for United Rentals. Um, and, and there are still other, there's a shortage of construction. And at the same time, we just replaced 50 people at PSENG the Newark-based uh, energy company, they're also in Long Island, because they, uh, they, they decided to push out one of their uh, Indian outsource vendors. And we took college grads, all right? Uh, many from your school, from, from, from Fordham, all right? Who couldn't find a job because they didn't have the means. They didn't, they didn't have somebody at home they could go to and say, how do I write a resume? And, and 100% transformation of those 50 people with pressure. We needed it in 60 days. And, and the thing was, it's not that they weren't open to, to non-college degrees. It just, unfortunately, they wrote the job descriptions requiring a college degree. But we had tons of these tremendous young people uh, who were ready that just, they just couldn't find their, their way through. So we think of ourselves, and, and the way I'll describe it to you is I always tell uh, people that join us, think of me as an offensive tackle you know, or a center. And what do we do? We, we, we block and tackle and open up holes, but you got to go through it. Right. And that's what we do. The talent's there. We're just going to get everybody out of the way and we're going to make sure there's nothing in the way. You know, you don't have any money for clothing. We'll take care of that. You, you, you're short of money or a mom is hurting at home for whatever reason. We'll help you with that. The car breaks down, man, we'll fix that too. So overall, then, what do you think this work from home shift means to the underserved, underrepresented communities that you serve? Well, I think it's actually an opportunity for them because they have complex lives. And in many ways, uh, there's an opportunity for them to start picking up alternative sources. And there's going to be a lot of outsource work coming back, I believe. Things like call centers, things like level one and level two help desk support. And they are mobile positions. You can grow from there. All right. And, uh, you know, what we're trying to push is this idea of having service centers all around the city. Our first one is in Dallas. Why isn't it in the Bronx? It should be. I come from there where I can take in these kids and get them through school and take them and be a surrogate. All right, and give them healthcare, 
while they're on their road. And what we're looking at is alternative sources of getting degrees. That whole supply chain of how people get degrees and go away to college is no longer, it's not a systemic solution in our society anymore. And if there's anybody getting hit hard and who's learning a lesson by underinvestment in technologies, it's colleges and universities. Think about it. So I think you'll see some uh, changes there. I'm writing about it and we're beginning to pick up steam. But uh, the, the, the sad news is the opportunities are there. Companies are looking to hire like you wouldn't believe. And they, they just don't understand that it's more of an entrepreneurial effort of going out and finding the talent as opposed to waiting for it to come to you. And I think what corporations made a mistake on is they stopped investing because people were turning over. And you can't do that. You've got to bring that back. In many ways, corporations in the 80s created their own dilemma. You mentioned that you are a guy who came from the Bronx. You came from the streets. What are the lessons you want people to learn from your own personal story? Well, I think that you have to be willing to go through the hole. So the example that I give, uh, my dad was a teamster during the Jimmy Hop era. Uh, he was a, a child that grew up in the depression. He never got past the eighth grade. He was a smart guy, had a hard life, went into the, you know, was, was part of that greatest generation in the war. And um, uh, nobody in my family went to college. My sisters didn't go to college. And I'm in junior high school. And I'll tell you where, you'll probably know, on Morris Avenue in the Bronx, which was a war zone then. Uh, and this woman came up to me in art class and said, there's this wonderful man who's a high school teacher who's giving art lessons on Saks Quality Stores on Fordham Road, right up the block, right across from the RKO yeah. and, and, and the Lowy's Paradise, right? And she said, I, I see you have some talent art. If I, if I put your name in, would you go? Now, what happens if I say no? None of it ever happens. I go there, I go downstairs, I walk into to Saks Quality stores, a furniture store. I go downstairs, there's this Mr. Ness. He's, he's donating his time and I'm drawing and he comes up to me and he says, Art, you, you are, you've got tremendous talent. Are you going to apply to the high school music and art? And I look at him and I go, what's that? And he says, oh, how about art and design? I go, what's that? He says, do you got a portfolio? I go, what's that? But here's what he knew. This is exactly what he said to me. Come here. <laughs> Come here. Listen to me. I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you a second scholarship. I'm going to give you assignment after assignment after assignment so you can build a portfolio. But you got to promise me that you'll apply to those two schools. Now go home and talk to your dad. And my father didn't know much, but he knew enough. He helped me with the, uh, you know, the mats and everything I put in for both schools. All right. And then everything was done. And Mr. Ness calls me in again. He says, come here. He says, you listen to me. You're going to make both schools. You're that good. And don't let your friends tell you otherwise, because I know the kind of friends you have. All right. And I, I'll tell you, I remember when I, uh, uh, 135th Street and Convent Avenue near City College, you walked up in that great cathedral called Music and Art. I walked in there, and when I walked out, I knew, I knew that I had made music and art. I, I just kicked ass. I, I was so ready. And Mr. Ness, I never said thank you to him. And I didn't have to. Mm. Now, let's say there's no Mr. See, he was my offensive lineman. But I still did it, right? I still had to have the drive 
to go after school three, uh, two nights a week and, and paint and draw. I had to have the desire and the belief uh, to go through it. So he just opened the hole. So we need to, to do more of that, all right? And let that talent come out and support it and encourage it and, and give people a vision of what they could be. And, you know, I get on the campus of music and art, right? Now, the art students, a lot of us, we, we were poor. But the music students, man, they, they came from the city. They learned how to play piano and everything else. And all of a sudden, I get, I'm looking at these people and saying, I'm just as good as them. All right? And, and, and then I become a messenger boy. And, and you know where I was running my messengers? Uh, uh, on Riverside Drive right. in a building called the, the Inner Church Center. At the, uh, I'm a messenger boy and I'm walking through Columbia and I'm going, gee, this looks like a nice place. All right. You know where our offices are now? <laughs> but, but look where the, right o- the office is in the inner church center. And a bum like yeah. me, a kid that's sitting there having lunch on the campus, looking at all these people. And I'm saying, I, I, I don't think they're any better than me. Because one of the things we know in the research is the biggest piece of these kids going through is self-esteem. The minute that you believe that you belong there and can be there is the day you're going to be successful. Dr. Langer, thank you so much for your time. Okay, hopefully I've been helpful and uh, glad to be on the show again. Dr. Arthur Langer is the chairman and founder of Workforce Opportunity Services. More information at wforce.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our producer is Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thank you so much for listening.